Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And so help us this morning to in kind with joy, um, with with maybe some sacrifice involved as well, but, but realizing that when we give back to you, we're not just giving uh, out of obligation, but out of a, a desire to see your kingdom be pushed forward and to be moved forward. I pray that our church would be the conduit by which the kingdom of God moves through your, your people here, our little hot spots of heaven as we bring heaven about in this world. I, I thank you for the faithfulness of our people um, who have been giving so regularly and so faithfully through this time and, and keeping our church running, keeping the lights on, all the things that have to happen um, in the meantime. And I, I, I'm so looking forward to the time that we get to be back together. And I know that you'll protect us and preserve us through that. Father, I pray for our nation this morning. I pray for the hurt and for the pain that we're seeing all over our news feeds and all over um, our social media pages and, and wherever. I pray for your healing and I pray for your presence. I pray that your spirit would flood our nation and that your guidance, your wisdom, and your discernment would move on us, begin to change our hearts. Um, because the only change that's really going to happen is through your spirit contacting people um, as, as Jesus begins to change and the, the gospel begins to bear weight on people. That's the only thing that, that's going to uh, produce justice and righteousness. And so I pray that through this time we would lean into and lean on you. Father, I pray that you would be uh, so near to us and that your presence would be dear. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. Pastor Harold, would you come on up? Sure. Awesome. Come on. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you've uh, tuned in and set some time aside to open the Word of God together with us. And appreciate your prayer, uh, Pastor David. Uh, we're literally for the last half hour right here in our living room as a family and as some of our staff are here. We're literally for half an hour have just been talking about the state of our union and our, our culture and our society and uh, how our heart uh, is longing for healing, longing for uh, justice, really, and for every man, woman, and child to be respected who they are as individuals, not for the color of their skin or for their economic status or their popularity, but just value people for being who they are. And uh, I think it'd be a, a big thing for all of us this week as you enter into that daily prayer time with God or your devotion time, when you get a quiet moment throughout the day and your heart reflects about what you're seeing in our nation, that's a moment to pray that God would change our nation for the better. I think change always begins in us. Uh, and David used the word hot spot a moment ago. Listen, heaven and earth are connecting in us. We're, you use the word many temples. We're temples of God. Um, and if we are then justice and healing and the Holy Spirit of God flows through us, be part of the solution is my, is my plea to you this morning. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you've tuned in. I'm glad for all of the wonderful news we've had. We've launched, uh, Pastor Jeremy, uh, at least three or four discipleship groups this week in Nicaragua. And uh, while, you know, other things are getting our attention and listen, there's some wonderful things happening. We're getting reports of people receiving Christ, watching our broadcast. And we're, we're just so thankful that God is moving and changing lives and the gospel is going forward and the kingdom is expanding which as you prayed a moment ago is the solution. The kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven is the solution. 
Uh, I know many of you are ready to get back into church, in the building. And uh, even though you're enjoying the, the fellowship and some of the watch parties this morning, uh, even Susan woke up this morning saying, I want to go sing with God's people. I, I want to go uh, sing praises and, and worship with all of my family. And I think that's our, all of our sentiment right now. Um, this is week 13 of social distancing broadcasts like this. Um, and we are optimistic that things are getting better. And uh, uh, I know we went out on a date like uh, two nights ago, and it was really bizarre to be in a restaurant with like, you know, 25% of the tables all occupied. And uh, we ordered a salad. The entree came in 30 seconds. We were like, you know, the check. And it's just like it's coming so fast because there's nobody in the restaurant hardly. But I know we're all ready to get back. And um, school started this week for our, our Pebbles preschool, and it went very wonderfully, smoothly, and we're very optimistic we'll be back in July. Uh, that The predominant question is, Pastor, which week, which week are we ready to go? Uh, we went to phase three with the state of Texas this week, Governor Abbott announced. We're just waiting for really another, another phase to click, and we'll be back. I'm optimistic it could be the first weekend in July. But if not, July is definitely our target date to be back in our building worshiping when we come together. Um, some things will be different. We'll probably come back to one service, not two, to start with. And let's get our feet under us and, and we'll, we can move quickly from there. We will put out a video uh, this week or next as we get firmer in that decision of the date and tell you what to expect, you know. Um, we really want to come back when we can worship the way we worship. Uh, the churches that are opening now have no children's programs, you know, seats spaced way far apart, masks and all of this. We want to come back to church when you can check your kids into the nursery. We want to come back when, when you can put them in children's worship and they can have a fantastic uh, energetic worship with, with their peers and we can have an undistracted worship you know, and, and, and sing praises together and be together as a family. I want to come back to church when I can hug somebody's neck and shake somebody's hand, not not just wave across, across the room. So um, get healthy, stay healthy, um, and in just some short weeks, we'll be back together. So uh, until then, enjoy the fellowship. Enjoy the watch parties. Uh, gather together. Don't sit at home alone. There's plenty of people who would love to have you. You're always welcome to come over even to our house. Uh, all we ask is if you come our way, no little ones, because there's no way to keep them quiet here in this room. So uh, just keeping my own family quiet is just a big challenge. Anyway, I want, I want to get to uh, our, our new series. For the next few weeks, uh, Pastor Dave and I are going to talk to you about uh, doubt and uh, uh, some issues related to doubt. Doubt is a very real thing, not just for unbelievers. Doubt is a very real thing for believers. I'll start with me. I've been a believer for almost now five decades, and that's a long time. So uh, in five decades, you have to know that I've had my own share of doubts that I've had to wrestle with over 50 years, almost, of being a Christian. Uh, in that period of time, you surely come to some moments where you're both discouraged, despondent, life is beached down. Uh, some things you thought would be have not come to pass, and it generates in you dis dis disillusionment, uh, doubt creeps in, and you begin to question some things. Now, I want you to stay with us 
This is not one of these series where you can just say, oh, pastor's no longer a believer. Click and, and check out. That's not what I'm saying. Stay with us till the end. The pastor has not lost his faith. The staff have not lost their faith or their orthodoxy. We very much believe. But we want to talk to you about doubt. Uh, we live in a time of skepticism. We live in a time where we are challenging what has been the accepted norms. Now, I don't want you to think as that's all bad. I believe at Cornerstone, I mean, the staff sitting right here with me right now, we have been the lead challengers of some of the accepted norms. We've wanted to push against some of those things and test them to see if, if they're real, see if they hold water with scripture and, uh, and I don't want to send the message that testing long-held long beliefs uh, is wrong. I think you should push against it from time to time. Uh, and the truth will be able to stand against that. It'll be able, it, the truth is not afraid of a test. Uh, uh, God is not afraid for us to ask questions. One of the things that really troubled me when I was younger as a Christian, and caused me some stumbling was I heard some pastor say, it's never right to ask God why. You're never supposed to question God. Well, well, that's just not true. And from cover to cover in my Bible, I find wonderful heroes of faith, men and women asking God from time to time, why? What are you doing, God? Why is this happening? Lord, is this, are you really the Christ or do we look for another? Oh, that's just John the Baptist, that's all. One of the greatest men who ever walked the face of the earth according to Jesus Christ's own testimony. So, no, it's not wrong to ask questions of God. As a matter of fact, I believe that's how you become secure in your faith is by stretching and testing and pushing. And you push and maybe God or the truth pushes back. And you're like, okay, I feel, I feel secure and solid in, in saying this thing. Let me back out now. Let me zoom back. We live in a culture now where the sentiment of the culture is in many ways to test long-held uh, opinions and values. Some of those need to be rethought. Some of those are good. Some of them need to be rethought. We live in a time of general skepticism of the news media. I think <laughs> there's a great mistrust of uh, we have to filter everything we see on social media, uh, on the national news media, cable news, uh, print media, magazines. You have to filter everything that comes into your life against what you know to be truth and try to, it's this great sorting, uh, the word is parsing, we have to parse constantly if what we're hearing aligns with truth or not. Let me take it a step further. It's never more apparent than in an election cycle, which is we are hip deep in right now. And what you can expect for the rest of the year is more of, of the same when it comes to distrusting leaders. In an election cycle, it, it's always uh, this upswelling of do we trust the people who are leading us, whether it's mayors or city councils or presidents or congressmen or, or, or chiefs of police or whatever? There is this rise also to push against the powers to be to say, are these the right leaders? Are they doing the best? You know, do, do, do we trust? 
Now that's kind of the state of the union and now how it really affects us this morning is what happens in our culture as just as normal spills over into the church. So what we bring into our uh, church or to our gatherings when we come together is what we've been experiencing in culture all week long. And now we come into the church and many people are skeptical about church. They're skeptical about faith. They're skeptical about religious leaders. They're skeptical as the Bible trustworthy. They're skeptical about, you know, did Jesus really God in a man's body really died? He really rising all of these skepticisms rise because they're spilling over into the church. So here we're getting to our thesis question this morning. Don't answer hastily. I know you're in the living room with many of your friends this morning, uh, but think about it for a moment. Here's the question. Is there room for doubt in the Christian faith? Now, now before I pull this thread a little bit, I want you guys sitting in your living rooms to think about, is it okay if in our living rooms, a few of us have doubts about some things. Is Christianity big enough to allow us to have doubt in this space where we are gathered together as a church family today? Or does Christianity demand that we banish uh, all doubt? Uh, and I think maybe at times we've sent that message that that's what Christianity does demand. I can tell you from my point of view my emphatic answer is yes, Christianity has plenty of room for doubt. I see it all over the pages of my Bible. Uh, not to live in doubt and stay in doubt, but it's okay for doubts to arise. And here's the biggie this morning, to be articulated. I know the last thing that any of you would want to hear is to uh, hear your pastor say, I have a doubt about this. It's very destabilizing. Uh, imagine in politics for someone to run for office and say, well, I don't really know the answer to this. You know, uh, it's like suicide. You, you expect them to know all the answers. Uh, it's political suicide to say you don't know everything or you can't fix everything. But the truth is no one knows everything and no one can fix everything. And uh, as a Christian for almost 50 years, I can tell you there's a lot of things I'm still trying to figure out exactly. And I'm very careful about making a stand on because I just feel like I want to know a little more myself before I make that dogmatic or that that solid public stance on things. It doesn't mean I doubt that Jesus is the son of God. It doesn't mean I don't understand how salvation is accomplished in us. Uh, uh, I don't doubt the existence of God. I don't doubt the goodness of God. I don't doubt the kingdom of God. I don't doubt the reality of heaven or the reality of hell. But there have been some times where I doubted that God was listening to my prayers. There's been some times when I wondered, what in the world are you doing, God? Uh, why haven't you rescued me? Or why haven't you done things as I think they should be done? And in that moment of disappointment, that's where the door is open for doubt. So what I want to say to all of us listening this morning is, Christianity has room for your doubts to exist right here with your faith. Now, we're going to try to relegate the doubts more and more, but don't be afraid to say, I have some. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a crime in a group of Christians to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. It doesn't mean you're a heretic. doesn't mean you're a third-class Christian. As I said about John the Baptist, and we'll talk more about some of the characters next week who did doubt some of the greatest men who ever lived, Jesus said. 
And right at the end of his life, he went through a whole series of doubts because of the circumstance he was in. If you were in his sandals, you would have probably been thinking the exact same thing. And if we're completely honest this morning, and maybe when I finish here this morning, we can have just a moment in your living room to discuss this. If we were completely honest this morning, those of you who are secure in your faith could look across the room and say to others, sure, I've had some doubts. And we could admit that. And then maybe you could tell how you overcame those doubts, or maybe you're still struggling with a few and you want people to pray with you and for you today or help you find uh, traction to move beyond that. So don't be confused. Let me see if I can draw some clarity right here. There's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. These are two different things. It's a big difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is an outright rebellion against evidence which we will not accept as truth. So unbelief is when you're presented with, there is a God and here's what he's done and here is his revelation of himself and here's how he's worked. When you're presented with the truth and you just say, I reject that, that is unbelief. It's not the same as doubt. It's unbelief is a rejection of the truth, whereas doubt is wrestling with evidence to reach a clearer understanding of something. Part of our big conversation that we're having in the staff right now is uh, on the millennial reign of Christ, on on the timing of and or the existence of the rapture, the millennial reign, and the very, the word is eschatological, the end things, the end times teachings about how that lays out exactly. Because among Christians, there is a huge variety of opinion on how to interpret some of these passages and we're being very studious and very thoughtful and very systematic as we work through those things we're not doubting that christ is returning we're doubting whether it's going to be this afternoon you see what i'm saying we're doubting as to some timing issues or something we know he's going to return and what our hearts and minds are craving is some more knowledge a better understanding of the facts. And when we get a better understanding of the facts, then we'll be able to move beyond the things we're not completely clear on. Let's just say doubt leads us to really get with God and dig until we get a clearer understanding. Uh, Doubt is stumbling over a stone you don't understand, which usually will cause you to get in there and try to figure it out and understand it and wrestle with God and seek his will. Unbelief is kicking at a stone you do understand. You know exactly what God said and what he's revealed and what he's proven to be true, and yet you kick against it, saying, I refuse to accept what he has presented me, the truth and the evidence he's presented me with. There's a difference between honest doubt dishonest doubt. There's a, there's a difference between honest doubt and unbelief. There are two different things. When we doubt, we're doubting something that we actually do believe. We actually in our hearts believe it to be true, but sometimes we struggle with some of the details and we want clarification on some of the details. Our doubt is open to the possibility of evidence and our heart longs to be convinced of what we really do believe. I do believe it, but I really want to have more facts on it. 
Our mind is craving that knowledge that will ultimately crush the doubts and convince us once and for all of what we already hold to be true. Whereas unbelief is very different. Unbelief demands evidence that is not available. Uh, unbelief is when people set their own terms for belief. Uh, I will believe in you, God, if you make me beautiful, handsome, six foot three with black hair. God, if you'll do that today, then I'll believe you're real. Well, that's a ridiculous demand for me to put on God and call him out here for a duel and an ultimatum. Uh, unbelief is when people say things like, God, I'll believe you if you heal my cancer by tomorrow morning. God, heal me right now, and I'll believe uh, that you're God. God, I'll believe in you if you let me win the lottery this week. Well, those are those are ridiculous arguments where you're setting a, a bar and demanding that God meet it. You remember in Luke chapter number 16, Jesus having a conversation with some people and tells a story about some people who died and what they experienced in the afterlife. And, and the one man's like, you know, you need to send these signs to my to my to my brothers that are that are still living. And Jesus said they would not believe though one rose from the dead. Unbelief is such a thing that you've just decided in your heart. I refuse to believe even when presented with a resurrected Christ. And uh, Jesus was proven to be true in that statement. The unbeliever is always finding a reason not to believe even though they're presented with overwhelming evidence. So let me ask you a second question this morning. And let's just kind of be honest. Uh, we're, we're all friends here. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus Christ? And that's not an easy thing to admit. Someone we call Lord and Savior and someone we love and we know that loves us. But have you ever been disappointed with Jesus Christ? Maybe he hasn't answered a prayer the way you wanted him to answer it or in the time frame you wanted it answered or maybe he hasn't done something for you that you really wanted him to do in, in a certain way for you or again on a prescribed timetable for you and it led to some disappointment in your life let, let's talk through that disappointment because we have all faced disappointment and i think disappointment is part of the human experience we are all going to face disappointment whether that's through financial issues. I know many of you are struggling with employment right now. And now we're going to keep those paychecks coming here through this uh, upheaval that we've just experienced in, in the life of our, our nation. Or for some, it's health issues that cause, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than aging. And I'm speaking to a young church, I know, but you're going to get to live this. Nothing's more frustrating than just waking up and your body doesn't cooperate with you the way you want it to. And it leads to disappointment. It, health issues seem to just break against you and you get disillusioned and disappointed. And sometimes we direct that disappointment towards Jesus. Why hasn't he done better for me? Or why, why am I sick? Why am I struggling with employment? Why as a country who calls themselves a Christian nation going through you know, turmoil, both both in society and with this virus. God, why haven't you done better for us? We can direct that towards God if we're not careful and make him the bad guy. Let, let me give you an account found in Luke chapter 24 this morning 
Jesus, I think most of you will know the story, but if not, I'll recap it really quickly. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Three days later, uh, some women, in particular Mary Magdalene, leads this expedition down to the garden tomb. When Mary gets there, they find the tomb empty. She has an encounter with the risen Christ. She runs back to where the disciples are staying and uh, beats on the door, I'm sure. And finally they open and she says, I've been to the tomb already this morning. It's empty. He is not there. They didn't believe her. Doubt and disbelief are part of our experience. Uh, so what do they do? Uh, in particular, the scripture is clear. Peter and John run. Scripture is clear. Run across town fast as they can to the garden tomb. They look in, then they go in. Sure enough, Mary told the right story. He is not in the tomb. The tomb is empty. The big question is, where is Jesus? Mary said she saw them, saw him. They're there now. They don't see him. All they see is an empty tomb. Where is Jesus? No one really knew the answer to that question. So in Luke 24, we get a cutaway story. In Luke chapter 24, we learn that two of the disciples, their names are not really, their identities aren't really made clear totally to us. But there's two disciples who live uh, in a town, it's called a suburb, just out of Jerusalem, seven and a half miles out of Jerusalem, and uh, called Emmaus. And this is the famous road to Emmaus experience we're about to talk about this morning. And these two disciples have decided, since Jesus has been crucified and things didn't work out the way they, they thought, they were so upset, so disillusioned, so discouraged. Now all these doubts are rising in their hearts. They decided we're just going home. The best thing for us is change scenery. Um, you know, a lot of our response to frustration is just to run. It truly is. Run to a new church, run to a new job, run to a new relationship, run to a new city. Uh, you know, there, there are just runners in us and we just run away. But you know what? When you get to where you're going, you're going to find the same issues or where you're at. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just nothing changes because it's you. It's, it's, it's here. And so they're just like, we're going home. We're going to get out of Jerusalem and away from all of this. And so they started out seven and a half miles one way down the road to Emmaus back to their hometown. It would be roughly about a two-hour walk. If anybody wants to get out today, you can do an Emmaus walk. How about that? Turn on your tracking device and get out on the road, and you, you and your spouse and family can do seven and a half miles today. A little road to Emmaus walk it should take you about two hours. Ooh, that's a lot of moving. 100-degree heat. Well, they... Headed to, to Emmaus, and I want you to know the state of their heart. They were discouraged. They had all kinds of doubts. Nothing in the last 24 hours broke their way. Nothing in the last few days went the way they thought it would go. They thought they would be celebrating a victory for their candidate, for their party, for their society. The kingdom of God would be inaugurated and Jesus would be taking over the government in Jerusalem. Instead, he was crucified and buried. Now you can imagine their posture. Heads are down. You know what I'm saying? The sky is gray. I mean, everything's gloomy in their hearts. 
and they're talking this out as they walk. Suddenly a stranger pulls up beside them as they're walking. I don't know what that looks like, if he just appeared or if traffic merged or what, but suddenly a stranger's walking side by side with the two disciples. They don't know it's Jesus. And I could digress here for a long time, but I don't have the time. Pastor David and I talked to you for seven weeks about heaven and earth and the resurrected body is you. Fully human, no longer a zombie, a temple of God, a hot spot where the Holy Spirit of God lives, a living, breathing temple of God with a born-again individual in a relationship with God, filled with the Spirit, the resurrection body is you. But even better, fully human. And now you have all kinds of questions that we can't answer. Will people recognize me in my resurrection body? Yes. Eventually. But maybe not at first glimpse. Again, would you recognize me if I was 6'3 with black hair? Probably not. You'd walk right past me on the street. You wouldn't say, hey, Bobby, what's going on? You're just like, oh, that's the handsome guy. I wonder who that is. No, you wouldn't know me. But when I started to talk and I rehearsed some memories and I did some familiar things or you heard my voice, you might then say, wait, do I know you? Yeah, hey, that's you. What happened? Uh, so Jesus pulls up next to them and starts the seven and a half mile walk with them. Two hours at least, okay, that they're going to walk in fellowship and talk. They don't recognize it's the resurrected Christ. It's Jesus, but they didn't have that instant recognition. Let me read for you Luke 24, verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Hey, what's all this about? Gloomy guys, you're sad and what, what? Something terrible must have happened. What are y'all talking about? And as they stood still looking sad, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? That's the equivalent to saying, dude, where have you been? Well, everybody in Jerusalem knows what just happened. This was like, a news-breaking weekend. I mean, it was the Passover. There was a trial. There was, I mean, it was just crazy what just happened. Are you the only guy? Where have you been that you haven't seen a TV in the last 48 hours to know, to know what's going on? Jesus is playing along with him. Verse, verse 19, he said, what things? Tell, tell me, tell me about it. And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day. Hmm, third day has a lot of significance for us. Now that's why Jesus is alive, walking, talk, the third day. It is now the third day since these things have happened. Let me, let me paraphrase it. We put our confidence in a Jesus of Nazareth. We believed he would be the Messiah. He was the real deal. And now he's dead. And we are so discouraged, so disappointed. We thought we knew the answers. 
Now everything we thought we knew to be true, we're doubting it all. We're just doubting everything. Uh, we don't even know what's true anymore. Uh, we, we just can't sort it out. They took him, crucified him, and a beautiful life was ended on a cross. And we're just really discouraged. Now, can you imagine having that conversation with the risen Christ? Conversation continues in verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us, we now know from other passages, that's Peter and John, some of those disciples, they went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 25, and he said to them, Jesus is now talking, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus started at Genesis, two and a half hour, two hour walk, got a little time. Let's just start in Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Starting at Moses, he just began to talk through why Passover? What's the lamb about? Why the blood? Why does the lamb die for the people in the house? Why does God see the blood and pass over? Why? It just starts talking through. Moses, the prophets. The prophets is really the rest of the Old Testament. Jesus just talks them through the Old Testament. No doubt he explained to them Isaiah the prophet, chapter number 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him and by his stripes we are healed. That was talking about the fact that Christ the Messiah must die to win the victory. No doubt he took him to the Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. They pierce my hands and my feet. Uh, David writing Psalm 22 about the crucifixion of Christ hundreds and hundreds of years before the Romans even had crucifixion. And, and so from Moses and the prophets, Jesus just begins to talk them through. Your understanding was incorrect. You thought that when Messiah came, he would take over the government, sit on the throne, you know, right here, right. But that was your construct because you didn't have a, a complete acceptance of what you were reading in the Old Testament when it said the Messiah would first die and then be raised into glory. That's how he would win the victory and launch the kingdom. So Jesus is having a nice discussion. They finally get to Emmaus. Been a couple of hours now. No doubt their hearts were just burning with his teaching and man, they were just saying it's becoming more clear than it's ever become to us. Uh, maybe we were wrong to doubt. Maybe we were wrong to, to be discouraged. Maybe somehow through his death, Christ, who we put all our hope in, had actually won the victory and we just haven't put it all together yet. But you're really helping us, mister. Thank you for helping us understand it's becoming clearer now. And then they notice, wow, it's getting late in the day. 
are you staying at the at the courtyard Marriott? Down the, oh, there's not a courtyard Marriott. You staying at the Holiday Inn? It's not a Holiday Inn. Dude, where are you staying? Why don't you just come stay with us tonight? And the two disciples invite a complete stranger to come to their house. Uh, what what a wonderful characteristic. No doubt Jesus smiled a little bit in his heart right here because even though they're doubting some things, they did get some of his lessons right. And they showed hospitality. Many of you have opened your home this morning for a gathering of believers to come together. And maybe people you don't even know are sitting in your living room. I mean, you know them, but not really, you know, you don't have this long friendship with them, just a new one developing. Listen, that's what Christian hospitality is all about. Christian hospitality is opening yourself up to new relationships, opening, using your home as a place of ministry, sharing your food, sharing your life. And they did have this lesson. They said, sir, we don't know who you are. Why don't you come stay with us? I'm going to read verse number 29. But they urged him strongly. They weren't going to take no for an answer. Saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening. The day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. I want to pause right here, which is really not part of this text, but just to put out there that if you'll open your life to Jesus Christ, he will come in. This is a scriptural promise. We have this famous passage later in the Bible, Revelation, where he says, I stand at the door and knock. And we have always taken that, you know, in Christian circles as a metaphor of God knocking on the door of your heart. And, and whether that's exactly right or not, the truth still remains. He wants a relationship with you. And if you will just open up your heart and say, Lord, I receive you. I haven't got it all figured out, but I put my trust in you. He will come in and begin a relationship with you. He will be your Lord and be your Savior. And many of you have done that just in recent weeks. And you've been emailing us or texting us and saying, hey, I prayed with you. I've received Christ as my Savior the journey has begun in your heart. The relationship has begun now with Jesus Christ. Let me read verse number 30. So Jesus is in the house with him now. Food's on the table. And here we pick it up, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. Now, Stay with me here and use your imagination. Their last glimpse of Jesus, one of the less memorable things that happened is they're all in the upper room together before the Garden of Gethsemane and the crucifixion. And Jesus has them all at a table. And it's a Passover feast is getting ready here. And Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to He's breaking, he's blessing, he's distributing. Now, that memory is locked in their minds. Now, they don't know who the stranger is, but the table is set, the bread is delivered, and now all of a sudden, they see this. Bread breaking, praying, distributing, and immediately they said, wait a second, you're Jesus. And their eyes were immediately opened. As he began to do that which was familiar in their memory. Does that make sense? They immediately flashed and said, you're messing with us now. You are the risen Christ. And I bet he winked at him. You got me. Poof, just like that, he's gone. Now you talk about some strange happenings in, in these latter parts of the gospels now. 
And when I say strange happenings, I mean nothing goes as you would plan it. Nothing goes as you would script it. The laws of physics and gravity and, and material, nothing goes as you would plan it to go right now. I mean, Jesus is going to appear and disappear to at one moment be not recognizable and in the very next moment say, let me show you who I really am and do something familiar. And they're like, you're the Christ. We know it immediately. Same thing's going to happen at Galilee in just a little bit. They're going to be fishing again. And he's going to come talk to them and tell them to throw that net out. And they're going to be, shut up, loser. We're professional fishermen. Leave us alone. We know how to catch fish. You don't know nothing. The moon's not right. The wind's not right. The barometric pressure is not right. The bait's not right. We know what we're doing. But when they pull that load of fish against the net, Peter says, it is the Lord. I mean, it's instant. When he did the things that caused the memories to flash back in their mind, they said, this is in our first rodeo. He did this with us before. That is the Christ. And immediately, Peter's swimming for shore, and John's confessing the Christ right there. So now, I just want you to lock on to that. When God does something that triggers a memory in your heart, you're going to know it's God. You're going to know Christ is alive, and you're going to know what he's doing in your life. Let me use the phrase the Bible just used here. Your eyes will be open. And it doesn't mean really... I got my glass. It means your understanding is illuminated. Your 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 spiritual eyes, your your conception, your uh, understanding is open. Your perception has been enlightened. So let me quickly deal with this. What is God's cure for our disappointment? I want to explore th three things, lightning quick, that will erase discouragement and dissipate doubts. It did in their lives, and it will in our lives. Their, their eyes were open to the presence of Christ. They began to accept the truthfulness of scriptures and they had conversations with the living Christ. And that combination did something for the, for the disciples that moved them beyond doubt to belief. It moved them from disappointment to encouragement. Let me deal with those three very quickly. The first is an awareness that Christ is with us. As they're having supper, as Jesus breaks the bread, it's as if the guest now becomes the host. I don't know if you sense that in the reading of the story, but you would expect the, the master of the house to, to, to begin the, the serving and the breaking and the praying. and the, uh, you, If you come over to my house, we're going to put the food out and get the utensils and serve you and, and care. You can just tell who's in charge by the way they're behaving in the room. And something happens in the room when they invite Jesus to the house and they sit at the table. It's as if the guest suddenly takes over the house instead of the host. It, he's in charge. And it wasn't, uh, I don't know, it was, it was subtle. It, I mean, it's not like he said, I'm going to take over. He just kind of did. And he began to break the bread and he began to bless the food and let me say it in very clear terms. Jesus is acting as if he's in charge. But David, this has been our whole point for seven weeks. When Jesus showed up, he started acting as if he were in charge from the moment of his baptism. He said, the kingdom of God is here if you will receive it. They said, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. He said, Satan doesn't cast out his own. But I've cast them out by the power of God. And if I have, then the kingdom of God is here and you must accept it. 
he he started acting like he was in charge of planet Earth. He told the wind, shut up. And he told the waves, lay down. Uh, well, who do you think you are? I'm in charge. He walks on the water, defies physics. He says to demons, get out, go away. And they obey him. Not only did he act like he was in charge, he was in charge. And he proved it. When you're seeing the behavior of Jesus in the Gospels, what we would call the miracles, that's Jesus taking over, saying, I'm here, I'm who I claim to be, I'm in charge, the kingdom of God is now inaugurated, and it's game on. God is about to bind Satan and take control of this situation. I'm here, and I'm in charge. And now he did a very subtle form of that in the home. He came in, it's like suddenly... He started behaving like the Christ they knew. And when he did, these eyes began to become illuminated to who he was. You see, the Bible promised that one day God would come and rule and reign. But here is the giant issue for the first century believers. When God did what he had always promised to do, it did not look like what they thought it would look like. And they struggled at it. It became a stumbling stone for them. It became an obstacle for them because they had constructed how it would look, but it didn't play out the way they thought it should look. No one saw Jesus winning the victory and taking charge through his death. They didn't see that in the Old Testament. Their eyes were closed to it. So that when they read Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or some of those passages, they didn't think that the Messiah would actually die at the hands of these pagans there's no way, because you can't die in defeat and be victorious simultaneously. But you can. But we wouldn't construct it that way. You can, and he did. He said, I'm in charge. Well, if you're in charge, you don't get crucified. Says you. Jesus says something very different. He said, I am in charge, and I'm going to lay down my life. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down. We're thinking as humans... Why in the world would you give yourself to die? Because it's not what we would do. Well, just because it's what we would do just means we've constructed it incorrectly. Because when God shows up and takes control, that's what he would do. This is really, David, you've alluded to the Sermon on the Mount several times. This is, you say, what does that look like when God shows up and takes charge? Well, read the Beatitudes. That's what it looks like. You know, hey, blessed are the peacemakers, everybody. Blessed are the peacemakers. Theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like when God's in charge. Blessed are you when men shall revile you. Blessed are you. He goes through all those behaviors. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That's what it looks like when God's in charge, even though it may not line up with what we think it should look like. And because they had constructed their own thoughts about what it should look like, they weren't aware that Christ was with them, although he had been with them for two hours. Walking down the road to Emmaus, they're just like, man, I wish we knew the answer. If God could only talk to us. I mean, he's standing right there. He'd been with them for two hours in their doubts, in their disappointment. 
And you're like, well, pastor, if the presence of Christ is a cure for disappointment, the aren't their disappointment solved by the presence of Christ because they weren't aware of it. Now, I'm, I'm saying to you very clearly this morning, God is with you. He promised he would be with you. But unless you're aware of it, unless you're aware of his presence, his presence doesn't benefit you in its fullest. Christ was with them on the road to Emmaus. They were still discouraged. They didn't know it was Christ. They then come to that understanding. If you will open your eyes this week at your most discouraging moments and realize God is with me. I am not alone in this crisis. I'm not alone in sickness. I'm not alone in this relationship problem. I'm not alone in my employment situation. I'm not alone in whatever I'm dealing with. God is with me. And because he's with me, there's a victory to be found. I'm not alone. He's going to help me. He's going to help me overcome this. No one saw what Jesus did. But when he began to open their eyes, suddenly that belief starts to rise in them. We can have doubts about what is true, but God confirms his presence among us. He confirms, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For us, 2,000 years after these events, a lot of sand has fallen through the hourglass of history. We're 2,000 years beyond these events. But in the way we respond, not a lot of things have changed. We're still very much the similar human nature that we're reading about on the pages of Scripture. We who have trusted Christ, even in this modern era, also at times wonder, is God really with me? Does he see me? Does he care? Does he hear? So secondly, we need to accept the truth. We need to have this awareness of his presence, but now this acceptance of truth. The truth of the resurrection, the truth of God's presence, the truth of the scriptures is what turned the disciples from disappointment to encouragement from pain and sorrow to healing and joy, from uncertainty and doubt to resolve and purpose. It was an acceptance of truth. Uh, We also have to ask ourselves, what in the world was Jesus trying to teach his followers by all of this appearing and disappearing? Again, they had built a construct in their mind that if you say God is with you, that he was physically there and you could touch him because that had been their reality for three years. You say Christ is with you, where? And they would be physically in the room where you could touch him and handle him and and fellowship with him. They were having to develop a new reality. The truth that God is with us, even when you can't see him. Don't you think that was a hard lesson once they had got accustomed to the physical Christ? Maybe for us, this lesson's easier because we've never had a physical Christ in the room with us. We've never seen him break bread. or pour the cup and hand it to us and pat us on the back and hug our neck in a physical way. Maybe for us, this is easier than, I don't know. Uh, I know we still have doubts, but they had a heavy lift to go from a physical Christ to a spiritual presence of God in their lives. And it all came about because they were willing to open their mind to the truth that he was presenting to them. What is Jesus trying to teach them by appearing and disappearing? He's trying to teach them that I'm as much with you when you can't see me as when you can see me. 
For us, we've only known one reality we've never been able to see him. So I want to say to our congregation, just because you've never seen him, he is present with you. You have to accept that truth and lean on that truth. And that truth can become a very much reality for you. I think one of the things that might be helpful to you if this is one of your struggles, if you struggle with the fact, I don't know that God's really with me, affirm that with the truth of scripture. This is where you might want to memorize Psalm 23. Listen, when I'm discouraged, I say Psalm 23 to myself. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And just as I start talking through that Psalm, saying I'm a sheep, I've got a shepherd, he's always watching, he's always caring. He leads me beside the still waters. He's restoring my soul. He's leading me in paths of righteousness. Even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not alone. He's with me. Rod and staff comforts me, sets a table before me, anoints my head with all. He's with me. So you might want to memorize some passage from John 14, 15, 16. It'll help you dispel the doubt by accepting the truth of scripture as he proclaims, I am always with you. Even though it was late at night, Poof, he's disappeared. Even though it's late at night, they've just walked seven and a half miles. They barely got dinner started, it looks like. What did they do? They immediately laced up their Nikes, went right back to Jerusalem. Because they knew as discouraged as these two were, there's another 10, 20, or 100 disciples of Christ in Jerusalem more discouraged than us. And if we now have accepted the truth of the resurrection because we have encountered Christ, and we are accepting this truth, we need to go back and proclaim this truth to the other disciples so they're not discouraged also. So this is where uh, I think Christians sometimes get this thing, you know, uh, uh, my pastor says I have to witness for Christ. He's always wanting me to speak up for Christ. It's really not like that coercion. Don't, don't make it sound that way. Once you've encountered Christ, you're going to tell somebody. When you see discouraged people, hurting people, people without hope, it will bubble up out of you because you're compelled to share. So these two have information that the others don't have. They're going to run right back seven and a half miles after just walking seven and a half miles. Four hours, they're going to have been on their feet this day. 14, 15 miles easy they put in. But they were compelled to make that journey. And just something in my heart says they made it a little faster. I don't think they walked at a slow shuffle now. I think they had a sprint of purpose. We're going back to Jerusalem. We've seen the risen Christ. We've accepted the truth now that we, we maybe constructed a false picture. But now we're getting it straightened out. And, and now this is changing everything for us. Knowing Jesus is with us has the power to change our attitudes. Disappointment can turn into encouragement. Uh, it's amazing how the presence of God, I want you to go to those storm stories. The presence of God in the boat changes everything. The presence of God in your hospital room or in your bill paying moments or, or, or whatever has a way to change your complete attitude of discouragement to hope. So that a directionless shuffle turns into this sprint of purpose. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that God's with me. I'm not afraid to live my life. Let me read some more from Luke 24, verse 35. Then they told what happened. So now they're back in Jerusalem. That we told what happened on the road and how it was known to them at the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them 
and said, what's up? And not really. He said, peace be unto you. And they were startled and they were frightened and they thought they saw a ghost. <laughs> this is amazing stuff. And I just think if you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, here it is. Okay. So let me, let me replay it. You've run back to Jerusalem and you're telling a story about a man who was tortured to death, buried for three days, and that now is alive from the dead, walking the streets of Jerusalem, and has just walked to you with you to Emmaus. You've had fellowship together. Jesus is alive from the dead. And while you're telling the story to the rest of your friends, poof, he shows up in the room. Now, if you don't think that's funny, <laughs> if you don't think Jesus is like, guys, I know I got you good, didn't I? Wow. You know, no, I'm not a ghost. It's me. I'm back. I'm real, not, not just spirit. Again, seven weeks we've talked about heaven and earth. You are never been designed to be disembodied spirits. From the moment of creation, God made humanity to be embodied spirit, spirits in a fleshly body. The problem we have is our body's broken, but we're going to get a new body. But we're going to be in a body that is your destiny. And we know that because of the resurrected Christ. He's not just a spirit. He is a body. Let me read the passage for you. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands? See my feet? It is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus is now helping them overcome their doubts, saying, accept the truth of this. Here I am. I've appeared. Accept this truth. I'm giving you proof. Here, look, I'm talking to you, right? That's one proof. You see me. There's another proof. Look, touch me. I'm in a new body, a real material fleshly body. Touch me and see. Okay, still not convinced. And some of them still weren't convinced. He's like, okay, what do you got to eat? Give me some fish and I'll show you. I can eat it and make it disappear. You know, so let's have some food together. I'm really alive. And when they accepted that Jesus was really there with them, that disappointment is a thing of the past. Discouragement, gone. Disillusionment, history. Everything they went through emotionally for the last 36 hours, gone instantly. Once these realities are accepted Jesus is saying, I'm the living Christ and I'm the ruling king. This is what I told you was going to happen. So one of the ways you overcome your doubts is to acknowledge that Jesus is present with you. Now, again, he told them, but they hadn't accepted it. Accept that as truth. I'm going to read John 14, 25. When Jesus was still alive, John 14, 15, and 16 is where he talks about leaving them in bodily form and sending the Holy Spirit. These things I said to you while I was with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he comes in the name of Jesus, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. God does not want his children to be in turmoil. He does not want you and I living with doubt and disappointment. He wants us to live with abiding peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. 
let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, Jesus promised he would send his presence to you. God has sent. He's left physically, but he sent the spirit in the name of Jesus in spirit form to live in every one of us. Embrace that God is living in you. I know it's not the same as having Jesus in your living room right now sitting in the lazy boy. But it's as real as having Jesus in the lazy boy that the spirit of God is in each one of the believers this morning. All right, there's one more phase to the story. Let me finish it. They overcame through conversations with Christ. One of the keys to getting past your doubts is conversations with Christ. Let me read a couple more verses. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit, to you. Stay in the city until you be clothed with power from on high. Beautiful language. It doesn't mean that Jesus was saying, okay, Nordstrom's will open tomorrow. Everybody go get a $400 suit, be clothed nicely, and then everybody can go back to your village. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is tarry in Jerusalem because I'm about to pour the Holy Spirit down on you. I'm going to say, no, keep my promise. God's going to keep his promise. I'm leaving in body. I'm coming in spirit. One of the things I was thinking about is the Holy Spirit sometimes is referred to as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Christ. In this passage, he clearly says, the Father will send the Spirit in my name. When we say the Spirit of Christ lives in you, when we say God lives in you, when we say Jesus is in you, your heart, we're saying the exact same thing. Don't want to confuse anyone. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. God is God. <laughs> it's different forms of the same God. Our triune God has, if you would, three forms, if you want to say it that way. Jesus said, I have to leave physically, and he bodily went to heaven, wherever that is. But he said, I'm sending the Spirit now in my name, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God is going to come into the life of every believer. Ephesians 1.13, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and manifests himself to the church. They'll know. Again, so they, the, the, the tongues of fire are so they will know. They can see it. Therefore, they can know that God has kept his promise. That whole tongues thing that happens so that they will know. Joel the prophet is being fulfilled right now. Your young men and your daughters are going to see visions and prophesy. It's happening. Listen, the king, I'm in charge right now. The kingdom of God is right now, but not fully yet. It's inaugurated. You're in it. Let's go. I'm in charge. Therefore, you're in charge. Start acting like you're in charge. Start living for the kingdom of God. And all of these conversations that happen, then he leaves, then the Holy Spirit comes. 
All right, for us, Jesus isn't standing in the room talking to us. The Holy Spirit's in our hearts talking to us. It's the only difference. Rather than this audible voice, it's inner voice. But it's no less real because it's inner. It's still real. You say, well, that's just my conscience. Listen, <laughs> there's a difference. Your depraved conscience will let you do a whole lot of things. The Holy Spirit is like a sanctified conscience in you urging you to do the right thing. Listen, your conscience doesn't tell you turn the other cheek. Holy Spirit tells you turn the other cheek. Your conscience doesn't tell you do good unto others. The Holy Spirit, that voice inside you that says do right, do good, be like Christ, live out the Sermon on the Mount, that's the Holy Spirit. And listen, and when we do wrong, you say, well, I kind of have a voice inside that's, yeah, hello. That's the spirit of God saying, listen, we need to talk about this. You need to ask for forgiveness of this and let's not let this be an obstacle in our relationship together. And if you say no to the spirit, you quench, you, you begin to hurt your relationship, your fellowship with God. What, I, what I'm saying to you in closing is basically this. Jesus is like, don't you get it, guys? If you'll just open your mind and honestly approach the scripture looking for God, I will manifest myself to you. I will give you the truth. If you'll accept that truth, we can have conversations and doubt and disbelief gets pushed totally out of your life. For Christ in this moment with his first disciples, there wasn't a tomb deep enough. There was not a stone big enough. There were no grave clothes strong enough to keep Jesus Christ in that tomb. He was raised again in a physical glorified body and that changed everything. Because of that, we know and we can push doubts out that the risen Christ and the kingdom of God are real things that are happening and that voice in us is the very voice of God speaking to his children every day. We are living temples of the Holy God. If you're struggling with disappointment or doubts today, I want you to know there is hope for you. And if you have some doubts that have arisen in your heart, I want you to know you're not some second class believer because you've struggled with some doubts. Every believer struggles with some doubts. It doesn't mean we don't believe. It means we need more understanding to believe fully. Today, just determine in your heart that you're not going to continue to live a life of doubt. Or if you've been one of these people who are just doubting to doubt, a skeptic, and every time you're presented with truth and the witness of God, you've discounted it. Why don't you say yes to Jesus and act on the truth you know and see if God begins to reveal more truth to you? There is hope for the student that's struggling with their faith. There's hope for you if you're one of those people who are testing the norms right now. God's not afraid of that. He's not worried about that. He'll answer your questions. There is hope for moms and dads who need to hear from God today too. God will speak to you this week, maybe even today. One of my disciples called me this week, just so excited. Do you want to tell me he's reading the Psalms? And here was his message to me. God spoke to me today. How powerful is that? Listen, that's what pushes doubt right out of your life. When you have clarity that the creator of the universe had a conversation with me today. He's with us. 
He's overcoming doubt by truth and he is speaking to us. You do not have to live in doubt one week longer. Let's do something a little different this morning. Uh, there are hundreds of you in watch groups today in someone's house. And in just a moment, uh, I'm going to ask you just kill this broadcast. And rather than me closing you in prayer, I'm going to ask for someone there in your living room. Uh, right now, you're all looking at each other. Somebody volunteer, uh, maybe the host or maybe somebody else in the room. Be the person to close this service in prayer and maybe deal with some of the discussion if you want to. Maybe somebody can say, hey, this is me. I've struggled with some things and I beat myself up because I thought I was a bad person because I was testing some things. And, and today I have some hope that I'm not broken. I'm fairly normal. Well, maybe you're normal. Fairly no, you are. I'm just kidding. You're normal as a believer. This is something we all deal with. And that's okay. God's going to dispel the doubt. I'm going to ask somebody in your living room just to close in prayer. And you guys go ahead and cut me off right now. I'll see you next Sunday. For the rest of you who are watching as individuals in your home, uh, let me close you in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that you've given us your word we can accept as truth. God, we're thankful that you have put clarity on our disillusionment when we thought it should go a certain way and you played it out another way. Lord, help us to accept you're with us and you're speaking to us. And Lord, you don't want us to live in discouragement, but you want us to live in peace. You've given us your peace. Lord, we want to live in that. Lord, help us where we are struggling for knowledge on certain issues. Holy Spirit, illuminate us. Let the word of truth speak to us, Lord, as we have conversations with you today and throughout the week. Lord, the fact we're having a conversation with you, let the reality of that dispelled out from our life. And Lord, let us live in victory. Lord, I want to pray for anyone who's not yet fully a believer. Lord, maybe there are some listening this morning who never received you as their savior. God, I pray in a special way that you would open their heart to receive you today. If you're that person who's ready to put your full faith in Jesus Christ, then I want you to pray with me right now. If you don't know exactly how to articulate that prayer, we're just going to articulate our faith to God. You can use my words as a guide. Pray like this, dear, dear Jesus, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Lord, I want to receive you today. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you lived a perfect life and that you died a sacrificial death on the cross for me. That you rose again the third day and you are a living Savior. Lord, today I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me as I accept you today as my Lord and my Savior. Lord, come into my life. Give me a new life in Christ. Lord, from this day forward, you are my king. And I am a citizen of your kingdom. Lord, help me now to live that citizenship. Lord, whatever doubts I have, dispel them. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Have those conversations with me. Be ever present with me just as you promised. Lord, this is my prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you prayed that prayer, please text me or email us and let us know that you prayed that prayer. We'd love to get a Bible into your hands. We'd love to encourage you in your new walk with Jesus Christ. Listen, live in victory this week. I'll see you next Sunday. God bless you all. Bye-bye.